are. Uh, but just briefly, uh, my name is Mark Perry, my wife Rebecca, and uh, we are missionaries to northern Chile, to the city of Antofagasta. And uh, we're very thankful for the opportunity that we have uh, to serve there and to be a part of that ministry. And it's going gonna, it's gonna to work. It'll work. Well, maybe it won't work. It's on. Nothing. It worked around there this morning. Try it now. There it is. Yes. Uh, We're thankful for the opportunity to uh, be with you, and we want to thank God uh, for you and for your ministry with us, as Paul said, uh, thanking thanking God for the Philippian church for their fellowship in the gospel, and we're thankful for your partnership, for your teamwork with us in the gospel, uh, that you are a blessing to us, and we're thankful for the opportunity uh, to share that with you. We live in Antofagasta, Chile. It is the, uh, uh, the capital city of the region of Antofagasta. It's a city of about a half a million people. It's there on the uh, Pacific coast of Chile uh, in the Atacama Desert. Uh, it's one of several cities in our region, and uh, many of them do not have any gospel witness that we know of, and we're thankful for the opportunity to take the gospel to a, a dark and a thirsty place. Uh, we are thankful for the opportunity to minister alongside the Iglesia Berea Centro Bíblico de Antofagasta, which is our local church there. And uh, we have on our table back there, not only do we have some prayer cards that you would love for you to take along, uh, but there's also these little window clings. It's the uh, logo of our church, and uh, we would love for you to pray for them, for a sister church as well. And uh, to we, we're thankful for you, and they are thankful for you. They send their greetings in the Lord. And uh, also they are hoping that you will be encouraged as you hear uh, what the Lord is doing in their midst. And uh, they are um, trusting, that, uh, trusting the Lord to, uh, to work, continue to work and to continue to work here as well. What I'd like to do in just a minute, I'm going to give you a fair warning here. I'd like to take a picture of you all, so make sure you don't have anything in your teeth. And uh, I'll take a picture. But we uh, share every Sunday night, we share back with our uh, church in Chile where we've been and uh, where we've been worshiping that day. And they're encouraged to hear that. And it's always fun to hear their comments on that as well. Uh, a lot of talk about Rome, uh, Revelation chapter 5 and uh, that time when we will get the opportunity to all meet together around the throne of Jesus Christ and worshiping and glorifying him for uh, the salvation that we have. Uh, so if you're ready, uh, give me your best smile here, and uh, I will take a picture. I will try to take a couple here so that uh, we can do the best we can. There we go. That's great. Thank you so much. You guys are very photogenic. Uh, so we're thankful for the opportunity that we have to minister uh, again to a group of people that God is working in their hearts and their lives. Uh, they have all sorts of backstories, just like you and I do, uh, but we rejoice together in what God is doing and how he's changing us and transforming us into the image of his son, Jesus Christ. Um, this is what our, our, our services look like right now. We're meeting outdoors uh, because of restrictions that continue in place, uh, lingering restrictions, Lord willing, in the next uh, two weeks or so, those restrictions are going to be lifted and we'll be able to uh, resume meeting in the building uh, that God has provided for us. And so we're very thankful uh, for that opportunity uh, to meet together. This is our ministry team, uh, our co-workers, David and Christy Flink, and uh, our Pastor Andres and his wife, Clay, our Chilean co-workers, and then the uh, elder, uh, Adrian, in our, in our assembly, and his wife, Angela, and our families. We're thankful for the opportunity to work as a team as well, and we're very thankful for what God has done for us. Encourage you as you pray for us, pray for the spiritual health and maturity of the Iglesia Berea and Antofagasta. 
pray for our residency visas to be finalized. We have them approved. And Lord willing, when we go back, we have appointments to finish that. And uh, that will be a blessing to get that taken care of. And then pray as well for wisdom regarding the gospel advance uh, throughout the north of Chile. And uh, we're thankful for the opportunity to look to a new place in the next year or two. Uh, we will have hopefully clear, clearer direction as to where we might go and what we might do next. And uh, we'll have you, we'll keep you abreast of that. If you uh, look at our website there, perrys2chile.com, that's on the back of the card. Uh, there's a place there you can sign up for a, a monthly email and you can uh, be in, in the know on all those things. We'd love to keep in touch with you. And we'd love to talk with you outside by the table as you uh, leave uh, and get to hear more from you. And if you have any questions, we'll be happy to try our best to answer them. Or not. if not, we'll Google them together and we'll find out an answer. But we're thankful for uh, your ministry to us and for us. So we want to say thank you. We thank God for your partnership in the gospel. If you have your Bible this morning, turn to Hebrews chapter 10, uh, the section that we just read a few moments ago. And uh, this evening, what I'd like to, or this morning, what I'd like to do is talk a little bit about uh, considering Jesus and thinking of Jesus. The writer of the book of Hebrews uh, is writing to Hebrews, to Jewish believers, those who have confessed Jesus as their Messiah. And as often happens, uh, when someone confesses Jesus as their Lord and Savior, uh, that comes with it persecution. And in the case of these Jewish Christians, uh, they face immediate uh, persecution and uh, estrangement from their families because, of course, as you know, the, the, uh, the official Jewish position on Jesus was that he was not the Messiah, and that's why they put him uh, to death. So many of them have been suffering persecution from their family and friends in their Jewish uh, community. But also, uh, during this time, uh, the Roman government began to step up its persecution of Christians. Judaism was a legal religion underneath the Roman Empire, but Christianity was not. And so they were beginning to suffer some of the effects of official persecution as well. And faced with these persecution on these two sides, some of these Jewish Christians were tempted to think, perhaps instead of just following Christ, I will go back to worshiping God as my ancestors have done uh, for 1,500 years uh, in the Old Testament way, in the Jude Jewish way, and I'll go back to Judaism and, uh, and kind of step away from Christ, and in that sense, I can kill two birds with one stone. Uh, I'll now be a legal religion under the empire of Rome, and uh, my family and Jewish family and friends will take me back in again. The writer of Hebrews writes to them, and he says, you cannot do this. You cannot turn back from following Jesus Christ, from believing in Jesus Christ, because apart from him, there is no salvation. There's no way to come to God. There's no way to be right with God apart from the person and work of Jesus Christ. And to make his case, the writer spends the first 10 chapters basically laying out for us, saying, consider Jesus. Let's think about Jesus. Let's think about who he is and what he has done. And let's compare him to the Judaism, to the Jewish religion of the Old Testament. He says, let's consider Jesus. And he compares Jesus, and first of all, immediately right off the bat, to the prophets of the Old Covenant. He says that God spoke in times past in many ways, in different forms, but now he's communicated, revealed himself through his Son. He says that Jesus is superior to the angels. The angels are God's servants. They are powerful. They are glorious, but they're simply servants, while Jesus is God's Son. He says that Jesus is superior to Moses. 
Moses is the father of Judaism. He's like the George Washington of Judaism. He's the, the mediator of the entire Old Covenant. He was the one who went up onto Mount Sinai, and he communed with God, and God gave him the law in written on these tablets of stone. And Moses was indeed a faithful servant in all of God's household, but Jesus is the son, the heir over all of God's household. Jesus is superior to Moses. Jesus is superior to Aaron and to all the priests of the Old Covenant. The Old Covenant, God made a way for them to come to him, and those priests represented the people before God. And the, this was a wonderful blessing. But these priests were imperfect. They were finite. They were sinful. And Jesus is a superior high priest. He says that Jesus' ministry is superior to Old Covenant ministry in several different ways. Jesus goes directly into the presence of God. Jesus offers a perfect sacrifice and an eternal sacrifice and intercedes for us continually. And so his ministry is superior to Old Covenant ministry. That brings us to the passage where we are now. And in the conclusion of this sermon, the writer of Hebrews gives us three conclusions, three exhortations. First of all, he says that we must not turn back from believing in Jesus. As I said, you must continue to believe in Jesus because apart from Jesus, there is no way to be right with God. There's no way to approach God. Secondly, we must persevere in faith despite persecution. A genuine faith is one that perseveres in spite of difficulties and hardships. And chapters 11 and 12 give us a whole list of people who please God by persevering faith through difficulties. And finally, we have an exhortation to persevere in Christian living and also to care for our brothers and sisters in Christ. So the writer encourages us to think about Jesus, to consider who Jesus is and what he has done. And as we talk about who Jesus is and what he's done, we see that Jesus is superior in every way to Old Testament Judaism, to everything that we see in the Old Testament. First of all, Jesus is superior to the prophets. The prophets were the ones through whom God revealed the first covenant. The prophets were the ones who wrote down the scriptures. Uh, anyone who spoke for God, all the writers of the Old Testament are considered prophets. They spoke for God. They delivered God's revelation to the people. But they did this in different ways at different times, piecemeal. But Jesus is God's full and final relation, uh, revelation of himself. Jesus could say, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Jesus is superior to the prophets then. Jesus is superior to the angels. Uh, in, Jewish, in the Jewish understanding, it was angels who delivered the tablets of stone from the hand of God to Moses. And that, uh, that idea is, is backed up in the speech of C Stephen in Acts chapter 7 and also Paul in Galatians chapter 3. The angels were the ones who delivered the tablets of, of the Old Covenant to Moses. But Jesus, even though the angels are powerful, even though the angels uh, are in God's presence, even though they are sinless, Jesus is superior. They are God's servants. Jesus is God's son. And so he is more powerful than they. They worship Jesus. And God the Father calls them to worship Jesus. He's superior to Moses. He's superior to Moses because Moses was the mediator of the Old Covenant, but Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant and a better covenant. He's superior to the Levites and all of the priests, the priests of the Old Covenant. Jesus is a superior priest. The Old Testament priests had to offer sacrifices for themselves first before they could offer a sacrifice for the people. Jesus, being perfect, has no need to offer a sacrifice for himself. The Old Testament sacrifices, they offered sacrifices that were finite, that were animals, that, that, uh, that gave forgiveness, but it was not an eternal forgiveness. Jesus offered himself once for all. And so Jesus is then superior to the Old Covenant because he 
is a mediator of a new covenant, an everlasting covenant, and a perfect covenant. And finally, Jesus is superior to all the sacrifices of the old covenant. You remember, of course, in the Old Testament that when someone sinned, they had the opportunity that God in his mercy allowed them to bring a sacrifice and, and atone for their sin. And so that person would bring that animal, a perfect animal, an innocent animal, because animals don't sin, he would bring that animal to the tabernacle or to the temple. He'd lay his hand on the head of that animal, identifying himself with that animal, and then the priest would slit the throat of that animal and let it bleed out. And the picture was clear. I deserve to die because of my sin, but God allows a sacrifice to take my place, and that, animal's, that innocent animal's death paid the price that I deserved. And Leviticus 1 through 7 is clear that that person walked away from the temple or the tabernacle with forgiveness of their sin. However, the next day when that person sinned again, where is his sacrifice? Well, his sacrifice is dead. It was burned on the altar. The ashes were sprinkled outside the camp. It no longer has a sacrifice. He has to bring another sacrifice and another sacrifice, and another sacrifice. And the writer of Hebrews says there's a reminder that that sacrifice is not eternal. But Jesus, being the infinite and perfect Son of God, offered himself once for all. And by the power of an eternal life, he offers a sacrifice that is, is forever. There's no need for more sacrifices because he rose again. Where is our sacrifice now? He's at the right hand of God interceding for us. And so Jesus is superior to all of the thousands of sacrifices that were offered under the Old Covenant. Jesus then is superior to every aspect of the Old Covenant. Therefore, we have great confidence in the person and work of Jesus. As we think about who Jesus Christ is, the writer of Hebrews says, we should have great confidence and great boldness. And we have confidence in Jesus because he's the complete and final revelation of God. He's God's son through whom God has communicated himself to us. He is the all-powerful son of God. He's not simply an angel or a powerful angelic being. He is God's son, and all the angels worship him. He is the obedient and suffering Son of God, the writer of Hebrews says. He understands. He's walked where we walked. He obeyed and he suffered. He suffered persecution just like you're suffering persecution. And he obeyed and he was obedient. He, he says that our confidence is in Jesus because he is the judge of all who offers eternal rest. That famous verse that talks about the word of God is quick and powerful isn't necessarily just talking about the Bible, although that's true. It's talking about the word, Jesus himself, before whom everyone will stand. And I say this often in Chile, and I happily say it here. Every one of us will stand before Jesus Christ. And he will either be the one who judges you for your sin, or he will be your savior who delivers you from the penalty of your sin. Every single person will stand before Jesus Christ and answer to him. And to those who believe in him, he offers eternal rest. Not like Joshua, the Jesus, the Jesus and Joshua are, are the same name. Not like Joshua in the Old Testament who brought the people to the promised land, but then they still had to keep fighting the enemies. Jesus offers an eternal and final rest. So Jesus gives us great confidence. He's a merciful high priest. He's continually interceding for us. He is at God's right hand. He is the one who is saying when we sin and we are accused by the accuser, the devil who accuses the brethren, he, says, he stands and says, I've paid for that. That person has been forgiven. That person is my child. And he intercedes for us. He's a merciful and faithful high priest. He's a high priest who lives forever. Old Testament priests lived and served for a certain amount of time, and then they died, because that's what all of us do. 
But Jesus ever lives to make intercession for us. He's a perfect and eternal high priest. And so we have great confidence in him. Not only is he a high priest in the Old Testament, the high priest could enter into, once a year, enter into the very presence of God and the Holy of Holies under all sorts of restrictions and things like this. Jesus, though, sits always at God's right hand. Not in any place on earth, but in heaven, in God's very presence. He's at God's right hand. He's a perfect high priest, and that gives us great confidence to go to God. And then finally, we see that he is the eternal sacrifice for sin. There is no longer any need for any other sacrifice for sin. We do not have to offer ourselves as a sacrifice for sin. We do not have to do good things in order to win God's favor. Our confidence is in Jesus, his person, and his work. So we have great confidence in Jesus, the writer of Hebrews says. And that brings us then to this chapter, Hebrews chapter 10. Most of the chapters of Hebrews have a statement or an affirmation, and then they'll have like an exhortation, and then oftentimes a warning, and that's exactly what we find in this chapter. First of all, there's a statement, and the statement is this, that the complete eternal sacrifice of Jesus Christ is superior to all other sacrifices. You can find that in the first 18 verses of this chapter. Then we have uh, the second section, which is the exhortation, and it says, let us draw near to God with confidence because of the sacrifice of Jesus. And the writer of Hebrews, oftentimes, he doesn't just say, you do this. He says, we will do this. Let us do this. We must do this. And he includes himself in this exhortation. And then finally, uh, there is a, a, a warning. It's a very strong warning, and it basically says, apart from faith in Jesus, we cannot please God. There is no other way to please God apart from Jesus. Not through Judaism, not through our own works, not through anything else. Only through Jesus Christ can we please God. Only by believing in Jesus can we please God. And we find that immediately in the chapter that follows in chapter 11 that says, without faith, it is impossible to please God. Let's look at Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 25 now. It says this, Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he consecrated for us through the veil, that is, his flesh, And having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. Now let me show you what's going on here in chapter in verses 19, uh, verses 19, 20, and 21. We kind of have these these reasons, and he's summing up what he's been saying for the first the last ten chapters, and then he's going to give us his conclusions. And we find the writer's conclusions in three bullet points. There are these three let us's. Now, as I mentioned before. This idea of let us is a very strong idea. In our, in our language, we have the ability to, to give a command to another person. We don't really have a way to command us. Okay, we could say like, let's do this. But it's not like, hey, maybe we could do this, or here's an idea, or kind of throwing out an idea. This is, this is much stronger. This is saying something akin to we must or we have to do this. And we find these three points that sum up everything that the writer of Hebrews has been saying. Now, maybe you've read the book of Hebrews. Maybe you find it very confusing. Maybe you find it very interesting. I find it a little uh, overwhelming how well he knows the Old Testament. I'm challenged to learn my Bible a little bit better. But the writer of Hebrews has a lot of points to say, but he sums it all up very clearly in three points. He says in verse uh, 22, Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. We must approach God with full assurance of faith. 
Secondly, he says, verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Let us continue and persevere in our faith without wavering. And then verse 24, let us consider one another in order to stir up to love and good works. Right? So thinking about these three commands that the writer of Hebrews says, he says we need to draw near, we must draw near to God with a true heart and full assurance of faith. We must hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, and we must consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. What the writer of Hebrews is saying is, is precisely is this, that the confidence that we have in the person and work of Jesus enables us to come to God with confidence. In Jesus, the writer of Hebrews explains, we have two advantages that Old Testament saints never had. Perhaps as you read your Bible, you think, oh man, wouldn't it be cool if I could be like Moses or maybe if I could live like in the wilderness and see the manna and see the miracles or go through the Red Sea or, or maybe Elijah or Elisha and the cool things that they did or maybe David or see the glories of Solomon or maybe even get to, get to hear one of the prophets speaking and things like that. And that would be very interesting. But you and I right now have at least two advantages that every Old Testament saint never had. And as they think about us and as they look down on us this morning, they're saying, wow, look at what they have right there in Bucyrus, Ohio, this group of people gathered in Jesus' name. Wow, wouldn't that have been amazing if we could have had those advantages? The writer of Hebrews says there's at least two advantages that we have that Old Testament saints never had. First of all, he says that we can come to God confidently and directly through the work of Jesus. Look at verse 19 again. Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus. Now think about this. Right? He's talking about the holiest or the holy of holies. That was the place in the tabernacle or the temple. It was the innermost sanctum. It was where the Ark of the Covenant was. It's where God's presence dwelt in a physically visible way in a cloud of glory between the cherubim. And the high priest was allowed to go in one time a year on the Day of Atonement and to sprinkle blood on the mercy seat for the sins of the people. But the writer of Hebrews says this, right? thinking about all that background, thinking about an Old Testament saint and what they would think, what Old Testament believer in God. And here he says, we have boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he consecrated us through the veil that that is, through his flesh. No Old Testament believer ever came to God confidently or directly. Right? No Old Testament believer could come directly to God. If an Old Testament believer wanted to pray to God, if an Old Testament believer wanted to worship God, and if an Old Testament believer uh, wanted to confess their sins, what did they do? They came to the place where God placed his name, to the tabernacle or to the temple. And there were a series of walls and gates that protected the presence of God, right? You came to the first gate, and to this one, only Jews could enter. Gentiles were left outside. You came a little bit farther, only men could enter. The women were left outside. You came to another gate, only priests could enter, and everyone else was left outside. You came to that final veil, only the high priest could enter, and only once a year. No one in the Old Testament ever came to God directly. And secondly, no one ever came confidently. Even when the high priest went, the amount of preparations and care that was given because they were approaching the all-holy God, and there was great care that was taken. It was not something where they came boldly or confidently into God's presence. 
But the writer of Hebrews says, since we have boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, because he's opened the way through the veil, we can come directly to God and we can come with confidence. That confidence is not in who we are. That confidence is not in what we have done. That confidence is in the finished work of Jesus Christ and that we are coming in his name. We can come to God confidently and directly through the work of Jesus. No Old Testament believer ever had that privilege. And as they look at us this morning, as we came to God directly in the name of Jesus to pray, and we prayed directly to him right here where we were seated together, Old Testament believers would have said, wow, that is amazing. As we worshiped God and praised his name with great confidence that he was pleased because of the work of Jesus, again, wow, men and women together, doesn't matter who's a Jew and who's a Gentile. It's simply that you're in Christ. Christ is all and in all, as Galatians says. Wow, what an advantage, the writer of Hebrews says. Secondly, he says, Jesus is an eternal high priest who's always interceding for us. Look at verse 21. He says, first of all, since we have boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, and secondly, since we have a high priest over the house of God. We have in Jesus an eternal high priest who's always interceding for us. The Old Testament believers had priests. They had a high priest. Some of those priests were stinkers. You can read about them. Some of them weren't great. And none of them lasted for very long because they were just human guys just like you and me. But in Jesus, we have a high priest who lives forever. And we never have to look for another priest because he's an eternal high priest. He's always the high priest over the, high, uh, over the house of God. And he intercedes for us at God's right hand. We never have to wonder if, well, I hope he did things right and I hope that he offered the sacrifices correctly so that I can come to God. He is already at God's right hand. He sat down and he's waiting for all things to be made a footstool for his feet. So we have two advantages that Old Testament saints never had. We come to God confidently and directly through the work of Jesus, and we have in Jesus an eternal high priest who is always interceding for us, not only at certain times, not only in certain feasts or cycles or, or things like this. He's always there because he is at God's right hand. So we have these two advantages. Therefore, he says, we must believe in Jesus in order to come to God because he's the only way to God. Look at verse 22. Let us draw near... This idea of draw near is Old Testament language for let's come to God's presence, let's worship God, let us come into God's presence, let's, let's come to God. Draw near, he says, with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with complete confidence. This faith, this belief that we have in the person and work of Jesus Christ enables us to come to God confidently and directly. He says, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Not only are we able to be purified externally, but also our hearts. Sacrifices and blood and washing and all these things could never take away sin. It simply offered forgiveness, offered a sacrifice for that sin. We can actually have a transformation from the inside out through the finished work of Jesus Christ, and that is only by believing in him. And we must believe in Jesus in order to come to God because he's the only way to God. Verse 23 says, let us hold fast the confession of faith. We must cling to God's promises. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. No matter what happens, we can cling to God's promises because he is always faithful. 
We can have confidence in not only the person work of Jesus Christ, but also the person of God and his faithfulness to his word. And then finally, verses 24 and 25, we must care for one another. He says, let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some, but exhorting one another in so much the more as you see the day approaching. And you say, of course, well, that's every pastor's favorite verse, right? Don't forsake the assembling. And that's true. But let's look in verse 24. The command is actually not don't, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together. It's, look, it's let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. How can we do that? Well, he gives us a positive way and a negative way. The negative way is by not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but instead, the positive way, exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. What is he talking about? He says we must care for one another. All through the book, there's been this underlying theme of we need to not only be, remain faithful and persevere in faith in Jesus because unbelief is a threat, but it's also a threat to our brothers and sisters. So we need to care for them. We need to encourage them. We need to lift them up. We need to help them and encourage them as well. We need to encourage one another to persevere in faith in Jesus Christ. These verses are not simply saying just make sure you're at church every Sunday morning. It's not saying that. You could come into this room every single Sunday for the rest of your life and never obey Hebrews 10, 24, and 25. The command is this, let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. The goal of us meeting together is to be an encouragement, a mutual encouragement to love and to good works. That is our responsibility, that we are encouraging and building up one another, that we are interacting with other people. If we come in and sit down here for an hour and a half and then walk out and never interact with another person, we have not fulfilled this command. We have not obeyed this command. We need to consider how to stir one another up to love and good works. How do we do that? Well, by not forsaking the assembling and by encouraging one another. But notice again that it's not simply just doing it like I came to church and we'll see who I bump into and uh, if I have a chance, I'll try to encourage someone like as if I were some sort of Roomba or something and I'm just kind of wandering around the room and if I bump into somebody, I'll try to encourage them to stir them up to love and good works. It says, let us consider one another in order to stir to love and good works. That means we're talking about something that is intentional. It's premeditated. It's something that you're thinking about as you come to this place on the Lord's Day. You're saying, I'm meeting there in Jesus' name with Jesus' people, his disciples, and I'm here for the purpose of encouraging and stirring them up to love and to good works. I'm going to do that by singing out with all my, my voice. I'm going to do that by praying for and with other people, by encouraging them. I have people in mind that I want to talk to this morning. I have people that I want to talk to. And as I've been praying for and thinking about my brothers and sisters and perhaps messaging them or calling them throughout the week, when I come on Sunday morning, I've considered how I can stir them up to love and good works. That's the command that the writer of Hebrews is calling us to do. He says, we must consider one another to stir one another up to love and to good works. How do we do that? Not by, by not forsaking the assembling, but by encouraging one another. We must care for one another. We must encourage one another to persevere in faith in Jesus Christ. So what we have here in these three commands, these three let us or we must, we really have an outline of the entire book of Hebrews. And if you've ever looked at the book of Hebrews and you thought, well, this is a long book, it's confusing, there's a lot of stuff going on, let me give you something that might be a little simpler and might help you understand it a little better. In this passage, we really have the outline of the book of Hebrews. First of all, he says, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. 
So we must come to God with complete confidence in Jesus. And this corresponds to what he's been telling us in the first 10 chapters. They've been talking about consider Jesus and the superiority of Jesus to everything in the Old Testament. Therefore, since we have this high priest over the house of God, since we have boldness to enter into the very presence of God by the blood of Jesus, let us come to God with complete confidence in Jesus. The writer of Hebrews wants us to know that when we are gathered in Jesus' name, when we come to God in Jesus' name, we have complete confidence. Now, in this sense, I think many times we live in the Old Testament We're always kind of afraid of God. We're kind of worried, am I doing it right? But when we come in Jesus' name, we're not accepted because we do it right. We're accepted because of Jesus. When I pray, I'm not praying and hope hope God hears me if I say the words the right way or if I ask in the right way or if I don't sound too demanding or I don't ask for too many things. The only reason that that God hears me is because I pray in Jesus' name. But when I pray in Jesus' name, I have 100% confidence that he hears me. And I pray with that kind of confidence. When I confess my sin, I don't say, oh, I hope God will forgive me. I hope God will have mercy on me. He will have mercy on me because he accepted the sacrifice of Jesus in my place. I can claim with confidence that forgiveness. I can confess my sins, and I can know that God is faithful and just to forgive my sins and to cleanse me from all unrighteousness. Why? Because I have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. And so I come to God, I draw near to God with confidence. Many times I think we live as if we were in the Old Testament and we're cowering before God. I'm not saying that God isn't all-powerful. He certainly is. But the only right I have to come before God is not because I'm a good person or because I cower the right way or I'm wearing the right clothes. The confidence that I have before God is only in the person and work of Jesus Christ. But the confidence I have is complete. And I can come to God with complete confidence in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so when I gather here this morning with God's people in Jesus' name, I know that he hears us and that he is pleased, not because we sang the right songs or because we were wearing the right clothes or because we did it the right way, but because of Jesus. And that gives me great confidence. When I pray, I pray with great confidence. Why? Because I pray in Jesus' name. When you come to a king, you don't come to a king unless you have an invitation, right? Right? It's not like the White House where you say, well, this is the people's house, and I get to come here whenever I want because I pay taxes. You don't come into a king's presence unless you have an invitation. But if you come with the king's son, you come in whenever you want because we come with Jesus. Let us come to God with complete confidence in Jesus. That's what the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 1 through 10. He says, consider Jesus. He's superior to everything that you've had. So therefore, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. The second point corresponds to chapters 11 and 12, and it talks about persevering faith. Let us persevere in faith in Jesus. The Christian life is a life of faith, not simply believing in Jesus at one moment and saying, Jesus is my Savior, but it's of ongoing faith in Jesus. It's depending on Jesus. It's trusting in Jesus. I need Jesus today. My hope before God is based in nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. That's the hope that I have. That's the confidence that I have today, just like yesterday and again tomorrow. When I come to heaven, I have nothing to offer. Why should I let you? Why should you come into heaven? I've got nothing except I'm with Jesus. 
That's my only hope. But I must persevere in faith. And there are many challenges to that faith. There may be physical difficulties. There may be financial difficulties. There may be spiritual and emotional difficulties. There may be actual, someday in our country, persecution, where someone says, if you believe in Jesus, you'll go to jail, or we'll seize your property, or you'll be beheaded. And we say, I believe in Jesus because there's nowhere else to go. I must continue in faith in Jesus. And that's exactly what Hebrews 11 and 12 is all about. We all know Hebrews 11, right? It's the, it's the story, it's the, the people of faith, right? They did these amazing things. They pleased God. And it's not simply just because they had faith, but they pleased God by their faith. And then he says, even despite all the difficulties, you read of those people and they did great things for God, but they did that in spite of difficulties. And then when he gets to the end of the chapter, he says, and others suffered. They were martyred. They were stoned. They were sawn asunder. They lost their homes. They wandered about. And they pleased God because they continued in faith. The faithfulness is not in what we accomplish through God's power. The faithfulness is in God because he is faithful who promised. Therefore, we must persevere in faith. Do not turn back from following Jesus Christ. Do not turn back away from following Jesus but believing in Jesus. There's no other option. There's no other salvation apart from the person and work of Jesus Christ. We must persevere in faith in Jesus Christ. So he says in the beginning of chapter 12 then, he says, so let's run with endurance the race that's set before us. Just like Jesus did. He went to the cross. He despised the shame and he finished that. He says, consider Jesus, verse 4, who endured such opposition of sinners against himself. Let's follow Jesus and persevere in faith. And then chapter 13, really, and, and throughout the book, let us consider how to encourage each other uh, to follow Jesus. And that corresponds, of course, to chapter 13 specifically, but also to many parts during the book, that we have a responsibility not only to persevere in faith ourselves, but to encourage our brothers and sisters to do the same. Because the same difficulties that are, are making it difficult for us to believe in Jesus and to continue in faith in Jesus and continue trusting him, our brothers and sisters are going through the same sorts of things. And he says, let's consider one another. Let's know them. Let's be involved in their lives. Let's pray for them. Let's care for them. Let's ask them questions. Let's walk alongside them. Let's help them. He said, some of these people joyfully accepted the plundering of their property. What happens when a fellow Christian loses everything for the cause of Christ? We take them in. They're our brothers and sisters in Christ. We're with them. They're, we're right alongside with them. We have brothers and sisters in Christ today on this Lord's Day and other parts of the world who are suffering literally just because they're a Christian. They've been abandoned by their families. They're shunned by their families and their communities. They're not able to get jobs. And you know what? Their brothers and sisters in Christ care for them because they consider how to encourage each other to follow Jesus and how to persevere in faith. We need to do the same. It may look different in our context. It may be a little different the way it looks out, looks here in North America. But let's consider how to encourage each other to follow Jesus. So here in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 25, we have basically an outline of the book of Hebrews. And if you don't read the whole thing, you can at least get it here. But we have these three ideas. First of all, from Hebrews 1 through 10, let us come to God with complete confidence in Jesus. Why? How can we do that? Because he's a superior high priest. He's a perfect and eternal high priest who has offered himself as a sacrifice once for all. So we come to God boldly. We come to God directly. We come with complete confidence in Jesus. Whether it's coming to God in prayer, we come with boldness. 
because we come in Jesus' name. Whether it's coming to God in worship, we come because we're in Jesus' name. Whether it's in confession of sin, we come with confidence because Jesus has promised forgiveness of sin, and we confess our sins. Let's come to God with complete confidence in Jesus. Hebrews 11 and 12, let us persevere in faith. Let us continue despite the difficulties, despite the challenges, despite persecution, if and when it comes. And we can do that because God is always faithful to his promises. God is the one whose faithfulness enables us to to persevere in faith in Jesus Christ. And then finally, we have a responsibility this way with one another. Let us consider how to encourage each other to follow Jesus. Why? Because the danger of unbelief threatens all of us. Every single one of us has in our hearts that seed of unbelief. He gives the example of the Old, of the Old Testament when, the, when the, uh, they came out of, uh, out of Egypt. And what happened? Almost immediately they fell apart. They saw God's ma- amazing works. They believed in his amazing power. And then the danger of unbelief threatened them almost immediately. That threatens us too. That threatens you. That threatens your brothers and sisters in Christ. Therefore, we need to encourage one another. We need to do that uh, in a premeditated, intentional sort of way. We need to take seriously the gathering of believers on the Lord's day. It's not simply a thing to check off and say, I did that, now what's for lunch? And it's not simply, well, I felt good about that, or I went away pretty encouraged. We have a responsibility to come and consider and be ready to encourage one another to, fo- to follow Jesus Christ. Think about this ahead of time. Think about your brothers and sisters in Christ throughout the week and encourage them because the danger of unbelief threatens all of us. And if you think it doesn't, then you just don't know anything about your brothers and sisters in Christ's lives. You need to be involved in their lives so you know what that is like and how that works. So Hebrews then gives us this beautiful outline, this beautiful example, these three commands. We must come to God with complete confidence in Jesus because he's a superior high priest. We must persevere in faith in Jesus because God is always faithful to his promises. And we must consider how to encourage each other to follow Jesus because the danger of unbelief threatens all of us. The writer of Hebrews then says, consider Jesus. Let's think about Jesus. And I hope that this morning, as we've taken just a few minutes through the book of Hebrews, to think about who Jesus is and what he's done. I hope you can see that Jesus is worthy of our confidence. And I hope you say, as I think, as I consider Jesus, my confidence is in him. I come to God directly and boldly because of Jesus. I continue faithfully persevering in faith in Jesus because he's always faithful to his promises. And I'm going to consider how I can stir one another up to love and good works because that danger of unbelief threatens all of us. Consider Jesus. He's worthy of our confidence. Let's pray. Dear God, I thank you this morning for the opportunity to look into your word briefly, and I thank you for this book, the book of Hebrews. I pray that it might be an encouragement to our brothers and sisters. I thank you for their attention this morning, and I pray that we might even be challenged to look through the book of Hebrews this afternoon or this week and and be reminded of the great confidence that we have in Jesus Christ. We thank you for the privilege we have to come to you directly. I know that each of us are suffering or feeling different pressures from various ways, and I pray that we'd persevere in faith and trusting in your faithfulness, and I pray that we would also consider one another how we can stir each other up to love and good works. I thank you for that. I thank you for the privilege we have to come to you in prayer with great confidence because we come in Jesus' name. Amen.